Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 277th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Lauren Oshman. Lauren is the CEO of Vestia Personal Wealth Advisors, an independent RIA based in Nashville, Tennessee, that oversees nearly $600 million in assets under management for 500 client households. What's unique about Lauren, though, is how she and her firm not only serve a unique niche of physicians, but have also built practice groups within the firm that serve niches within the niche, including female physicians and orthopedic surgeons, and how they've developed hyper-specialized services for their unique clientele that allows the firm to truly differentiate. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Lauren and her partners built a firm dedicated to providing high-touch service that still fits in the busy lifestyles of physicians how the firm develops services that help their physician clients with the unique challenge they face when it comes to salary contract negotiations and mortgages and disability insurance for doctors with highly variable income, and the way that Lauren's firm is further specialized in student loans and helping physicians understand when they may qualify for potentially six-figure public student loan forgiveness for their nonprofit hospital work. We also talk about how starting her career in a male-dominated advisory firm gave Lauren a better understanding of the importance of inclusivity and diversity for women advisors. How Lauren, immediately after having her first daughter, decided to take a risk to leave the firm she'd outgrown and launched her own firm to pursue better leadership and ownership opportunities where she could have a greater impact on change. And why Lauren believes that learning to communicate and working on the human connection as an advisor is equally important to learning the technical skills of how to build a financial plan. And be certain to listen to the end, where Lauren shares how she views the adversity she experienced in her career as learning opportunities and uses those moments as inspiration for her own future and future generations in her firm. How building a team within the firm has helped Lauren feel more fulfilled by having more people around her that she can uplift and impact the lives of. And how while Lauren is still striving to further improve the workplace she's created, it's looking back on how far you've come and how much you've achieved that really reflects the impact you've had on the world. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Lauren Oshman. Welcome, Lauren Oshman, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks, Michael. I have to admit, this is a little bit of a pinch me moment for me. (laughs) I have been listening since episode one. I was actually... um, pregnant with my first daughter when you launched the podcast. And uh, I was going on like 20 minute light jogs around the neighborhood to try to, you know, keep myself moving. And the length of your podcast, uh, I could do 20 minute increments. Covered like a week's worth of jogs. Exactly. I could look forward to the next day because I didn't look forward to the running part, but I did look forward to everything that I was learning. And honestly, I mean, you've had industry titans, you've had solo advisors. Um, I've picked up so many tips and I think listening to your podcast, our firm actually launched a year after you started the podcast, I think. And that's where I credit really me starting to dream about what I wanted my practice and client experience and firm to look like. So I'm just very grateful to you for everything that you have given to us through this community. And um, it's an honor to be here. Oh, awesome. I appreciate that, Lauren. I'm, I'm looking forward to actually like talking to you about just that, that journey that you've said that you've, that you've been through of, of getting started with your career, making a decision to 
take a leap and start your own firm. And I know you have a, a very focused uh, firm in working working with physicians and not even just working with physicians, but like particular subgroups of, of physicians. Uh, you know, we were like joking earlier. It's like, it's not even a niche firm. It's a niche within a niche uh, yeah. firm and, and the and the opportunities that you get when you get really focused. Because to me, part of what's really cool about what you're building at the firm, and we'll get to talk more about it soon, is when you get that specific in who you serve, you get to start offering some slightly different services than what advisors, quote unquote, traditionally offer. Because you can get super specific to the needs of your clients, and it's actually cost effective to do it because all your clients need that when you've got a, uh, a consistent focused clientele. And so that to me is part of this broader shift in as advisors, we tend to talk a lot about like, what's our value proposition? How do we explain in the value of our services for the fees that we charge? And how do we differentiate from all the other advisors that are doing it? And I feel like your, your firm is going down a pretty unique path with that because you've gotten so specific in who you're serving that you actually get to start building. A, a bit of a different looking business model with a different looking service structure and client experience because you've gotten so so specific on who those people are and what they need. Yeah, absolutely. When you know exactly who you're talking to and exactly who you're trying to serve, it becomes much easier, I think, to craft the client experience that that particular client wants to have. So why don't we just kind of start and dig in right there? Can you just talk to us a little bit about uh, the your advisory firm and and who, who you serve and who you're talking to? Yeah. So our firm is Vestia Personal Wealth Advisors. I am in Nashville, although we have a few different offices scattered just based on where our talent is. Um, we have a number of team members that work from their home. We have... Um, a couple or a few advisors in Indiana. We have an advisor in Los Angeles. So we're pretty spread out. 85 to 90% of our clients are physicians. The decision to focus there, actually, I'm sure we'll get into this, but comes from the firm that we came out of. So I can't take credit for that focus, although we did decide to maintain it because we felt like there were so many advantages to having that niche and being able to craft to that niche. January 2018 was when we started, and um, we're currently a team of 19, you know, and that's all levels, advisors, planners, client service administrators, all of that. Um, we serve about 500 families, 600 million of assets under management. And so who is the, who is the clientele? You, uh, the physicians of all types, particular physician types, like uh, tell us a little bit more about how you target and for who you serve. Yeah. So we, um, physicians specifically, we are looking for usually, and most physicians do fit this, but we are looking for incomes, usually like 350 or higher. Physicians have a lot of student loans. They have, you know, there's, um, cash flow consideration. So we found that we really can, have an impact when we have incomes north of that 350. I mean, we have partners that have 20 years of experience working with physicians. And so what we realized the further we got in with physicians is that even within physicians, there are lots of different types of doctors who live different daily lives, who have different concerns, right? There are certain subspecialties of physician that um, are more apt to be in a private practice. There are some that are more likely to be hospital employed. Um, if they are in private practice, if they're surgeons, they probably have considerations for buying into a surgery center. Um, so we realized that there was actually niche within a niche, I'll call it, <laughs> expertise that we could offer. So in 2020, um, and this is probably based on my background being a woman in finance, which is a traditionally male-dominated and kind of designed more for men type field, at least historically. Um, I always had a dream of this women in medicine 
practice group and this women in medicine offering. And so we launched that. Um, another advisor on my team, Jackie Denson, and I launched that in 2020 based on the success that we saw with that and how that was really resonating with our existing clients who already fit that niche. And then also the opportunities that we were getting to you know, talk on podcasts, to do educational workshops for groups of female physicians. Um, in 2021, we launched an orthopedic surgeon practice group um, and have had similar, if not better success with that one <laughs> um, because there are a lot of, um, there's just a lot of particular needs of that group and a lot of personality as well. Surgeons tend to be wired very similarly. I think that's what calls them into surgery and mm. specifically orthopedic surgery. And so, um, you know, we have advisors that know all of that. They know exactly what to say to an orthopedic surgeon. They know how long they have their attention. They know what's going to resonate with them. And they've seen a lot of success with that. Well, I love how this is reflected even on your on your website as well, uh, that you've got this like label right up in the in the main menu. You talk about like our team, our process, our mission, values, and you've got this label practice groups. Mm hmm. And then within it, like orthopedic surgeons and, and and female physicians. And it's a striking way to me to to frame up like, you know, the homepage says we work with physicians, like literally there's a physician in scrubs looking back at you on the, <laughs> on the homepage. So super clear who you serve on the homepage, but that even within that domain, you've got this this listing of practice groups. I mean, it, it reminds me of like law firms, accounting firms have the same yeah. thing. I, I go to a, I go to one of the big, big regional uh, law firms in in the in the DC area here, and you know they have a whole bunch of lawyers in in like practice areas. And you get the the commercial law folks and the corporate law folks and the trust and estates folks and all the all the different practice group divisions. Uh, and so I'm, I'm struck on the one hand, like you've got the same you've got the same thing here, but most firms I've seen that at least have been experimenting that it's because they've got completely unrelated niches and they're trying to bring mm -hmm. them together. Like we have a practice group for physicians and a practice group for entrepreneurs and a practice group for retirees. Like they're, they're, they're disconnected and they're trying to bring them together by saying practice groups. Y yours, again, as you said, is, is kind of this niche within a niche dynamic that the whole firm speaks to physicians, right? Like the homepage is in our collective mm -hmm. years working with specialty physicians. So we're really clear on who we're working with. But you've still gone a step deeper with it, with kind of labeling and calling out practice groups. Yeah. Uh, so you probably don't remember this, Michael, but you came and spoke um, at the FPA event years ago here in Nashville. And um, I somehow was part of a smaller group that you did kind of a dinner discussion with the night before. And I still remember you used an example when you're we talking about this niche strategy, you used this example, you said, you know, you put together a conference for retirees, and you have four advisors that are there to speak on different topics. They're all being introduced. And you know, the first one says, Hey, I'm advisor so and so I work with retirees. And the mm -hmm. second one says the same thing. And the third one says the same thing. And the fourth one gets super specific and says, I'm so-and-so, I work with retirees who have amassed a net worth of at least $2 million, and they are looking to travel the world and blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And the conference is over. Everyone was equally competent. Everyone in that room was a retiree. Mm -hmm. That was the requirement to be there. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so the first three advisors who said they worked with retirees walked out with no interest for meetings from prospective clients, they cast their net to the whole room. The fourth advisor 
only cast her net to mm-hmm. three people in the room, but all three people all three. line up to talk with her. And I have mm-hmm. remembered that. And I have seen that. That is absolutely true in practice. If I sit on a stage and I say that I work with female physicians and I help them with X, Y, Z, the female physicians who are in that room who face that challenge, even if they already have an advisor, are going to come talk to me. Because mm-hmm. how could they not, right? I still remember, like, I don't remember what credit card company it was. Some credit card company sent me a pink credit card in the mail. <laughs> and I I mean, I I am uh, in all of my desk accessories and wallets and, put, you know, all of that. Like, I, I love girly. Um, someone sent me a pink credit card and I almost signed up for it. I did not need a credit card. But because it looked like it was made for me, like, I was there. And so that's the way that we have tried to design our firm. And again, I mean, it, it works. I totally understand just any merchandise in Deep Kits is Blue just pretty much gets my natural buying action immediately as well. Right? I say it's what, yeah. Because <laughs> it's, it's made why, for it's, you. That's why our credit cards chase Sapphire. Like, it's not a promotion for Chase, but they picked the right color. So I had to get the credit card. I love it. So I am wondering though, because just I, the, the challenge I find that most of us still have, like it's nice to say it in practice, but then you get to the moment and you're looking at like all, you know, you're looking at an audience of physicians. And approximately 50% of them are male and you're going to like instantly alienate them the first moment you say, well, we specialize in female physicians. Like, does that worry you? Does that? Yeah. Are you like, are you not anxious when you look out like, here's all the people we're going to immediately turn off as soon as we say this or getting even more specific, like we work with orthopedic surgeons. So take all the rest of you surgeons with the other 12 specialties or I don't even know how many specialty surgeons have probably more than that. <laughs> Lots like, more than that. Yeah. Yeah. So like, okay, we're going to take the other 27 specialties and like cross all of them off the list. Yeah. Just an orthopedic. Like, just does that, does that not bother you <laughs> or worry you? Yeah. It's a very valid concern. I will say that. Here's been my experience. I'll say two things. One, only about half my practice is female physicians. So I still work with plenty of male physicians or female physicians who are married to male physicians, right? Because I still take referrals for doing a great job. And I've actually, I've had a lot of success building my practice through referrals. Um, so it's not, it doesn't mean I don't work with other types of physicians, right? It just means that's who my external messaging for my personal practice, that is often, you know, out there, what my external messaging is based on. I'll also zoom out and say, as a firm, remember, our firm serves physicians. So we've been very intentional about building, you go back to that example of the law practice. Mm -hmm. If you reach out to the law practice, you've worked with an attorney on business formation, right? And you need an estate planning attorney. You can reach out to that business formation attorney and say, hey, do you have anyone that you would recommend for estate planning? And they probably do. They'll introduce you to one of their mm-hmm. partners. Our firm works the same way. So the if I... The practice areas, like, exactly. hey, I'm focusing on female physicians, but like we have a lot of other awesome advisors on our physician-focused team. Exactly. Can I introduce you to one of them who'd be a great fit for you being a brain surgeon? Yeah. And again, this resonates with physicians because, um, because actually... They specialties. Yeah. My, my father is an interventional cardiologist. In his group, they have cardiologists cardiologists that do four distinct different things within the heart. (laughs) So he's not trying to do all types of heart procedures, right? He's going to say, oh, hey, let me introduce you to my partner so-and-so who I would trust with my own family member if they needed this type of procedure. That's exactly what we do. 
That's an interesting point that within physicians in particular, like the, you, there's probably no better segment to serve of people who would really understand the virtue of being hyper-specialized. Yeah. And the value of it, why they would want that, because they understand that they wouldn't want, um, you know, they wouldn't want a knee surgeon operating on their elbow. They know that. And, and and I guess at a high level, like the firm branding of physicians, but the practice groups having more specificity is what leaves the door open for you. Granted, it's sort of niche within a niche, but it, it leaves the door open to say, yeah, we're happy to work with any physicians because our firm is focused exactly. on physicians. But hey, if you are an, uh, uh, if you are an orthopedic surgeon in particular, there's some you know, particularly cool, unique stuff we do for folks just like you. Yes, exactly. And what I love too is it's a really nice way to grow up advisors because a physician life cycle, for those of you who don't know, um, they spend a lot of time in school. Then they go on to what's called residency. They get paid maybe like fifty to $60,000 a year to work 100 hours a week. Um, and then they finish that training. They may do more training to get more subspecialized. Then they actually start their, quote, real jobs where they will sometimes 10x their income. Mm -hmm. um, that transition point is, I mean, they are very new. They've never had a financial advisor before. They never had a need for one, but all of a sudden they have all of this money that well, they, they need to be. They go uh, from making very limited money and having very few choices to making a lot of money and suddenly having a lot of choices. Exactly. And so we have advisors on our team who are fresher, right? They've been on our team. They've been working with one of our lead advisors or partners for a while, but they're just getting out into, you know, starting to plan solo or kind of be the lead on with certain clients. And that is a great spot for them to get their experience because that's very scalable. The needs of a physician who are in that transition to practice phase are very similar no matter what their specialty is for the most part. And so that's been a really great way to provide a really great training experience for um, our advisors who are kind of just making that transition from planner to lead advisor, um, where they can work with a partner, they can lead that conversation. And so, um, you know, and then as those clients age, as they get more established in their practice, then again, the referrals that they're sending in are higher caliber. It's been a really great way for our advisors to work on building their practices as well. So talk to us a little bit more about the value proposition and what you actually do for your clients. Because my, my understanding is it, it looks a little bit different than called just like just air quotes, just the traditional, like we'll provide you a comprehensive financial plan to manage your portfolio. Yes. So physicians are very busy people. I'm not taking away from the very busy business owners of which I am one, but physicians are very busy people. Um, and they, um, I mean, they will work you know, before the sun comes up and they are still working when the sun goes down <laughs> or they'll work overnight shifts. Like they just don't have a great ability to manage their own financial life, not because they're not very competent and capable. They just do not have the time. The value of their time is much higher at the hospital or in the OR or wherever. So right. um, surgeons in the OR will have someone who's called a first assist. And that person is assisting their surgery, handing them their tools. Oftentimes we'll know what the surgeon needs before the surgeon asks for it because that's how in tune they are with the surgeon and what it is they're trying to accomplish. That's what we tried to do at Vestia because we, when we were launching, we surveyed our clients and we said, you know, basically, what do you want us to do for you? Because you'll hear varying opinions. You know this out in the industry of like, should we do insurance? Should we avoid insurance like the plague? Like, you know, um, and so we just asked our clients, we said, what would you like us to do for you? And they basically said, 
anything you can do with excellence because we already trust you. And so we took that and if you know doctor is looking to buy a house, we are shopping out the physician mortgages that are available to them and finding them the most competitive one. If there's you know headlines about tax law proposals, we're looking at who that's going to impact, looking at actions they need to take, probably putting together that strategy before they've even scheduled a meeting or a phone call. We're taking that to them. They get a job offer. We are running that against benchmarks of their value to try to see whether or not they're going to be paid fairly for the work that the hospital or the group is going to have them do. And if they are not, then we actually have a negotiator who can help them optimize that contract. Um, then obviously so, we do the, you know, student. Wait, wait, wait. Meeting. I want to I hear more <laughs> about that. Wait, so. Stop, stop. I, so, so physician client gets a job offer. You finish a residency. It's time for the, the big job. You're getting hired by the hospital for, uh, you know, mm-hmm. lot, lots of dollars for lots of hours doing lots of stuff. So you're going in and saying, like, bring us the job offer the hospital gives you, and we're actually going to vet it against benchmarks. Yes. Mm-hmm. So there are um, available, I mean, you have to subscribe to them and pay for them. But again, that's an expense that makes sense for our firm because this is all we do. So we subscribe to databases that will show you for, you know, let's use the example of a cardiologist, how much, um, how much cardiologists work. So uh, doctors have a unit called an RVU. That's a measure of their productivity. So it's how many RVUs would they be expected to generate if they're in the 25th percentile, the 50th, the 75th, the 90th? And then how much are they going to be compensated or would they expect to be compensated in the 25th, the 50th, the 75th, and the 90th? And so we will take the metrics in their contract, stack them up against the benchmarks, and let's say that their pay, their starting offer is at the 50th percentile, but the expectation for productivity, that RVU is in the 75th percentile, they're not going to be getting paid for all of their work. They wouldn't know that because they're going to see that six figures on that piece of paper and they're just going to sign it. So we can point out to them, hey, there may be the ability to optimize this. And then we can either help them with their negotiation strategy. Or like I said, we actually went as far as to contract a negotiator, someone, his brother's an orthopedic surgeon. So he had experience doing this. Um, He can go do the negotiation for them. And then he gets paid a percentage of, he's basically their agent. He gets paid a percentage of the added amount of money that he gets for them. One of my clients, he has gotten $250,000 more in the offer. Um, that, Ooh, that that's a is monster number. It's insane. Yeah. Does your firm get paid as the negotiator? Is is the negotiator ultimately an, an outside person that like you're, you're sub-licensing, you're bringing in, you're, you're simply referring them out and you have a tight partnership. Like just, just yeah. like, is this literally part of like the business model that you're getting like <laughs> negotiator payments as a service yeah. offering or, so or was, more of a, like, this is a hyper-targeted value proposition because we make this happen, but like, it's not. Yeah. So obviously employee. we're benefiting. I mean, in the example of my client whose offer is now $250,000 higher than what they initially put in front of him, I'm going to get to help him save and manage a lot more of that money. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that I mean, obviously like we, we spend a lot of time trying to figure like how do we get an extra you know one one percent of investment return like <laughs> right a two hundred fifty thousand dollar 
per year swing in income, which for most people, like what you make also becomes the base at which you negotiate for future gigs uh, exactly. as well. So like that, that one, that one moment could literally be millions of dollars of income over life. Yes. So we're still a little bit in the proof of concept phase on this. Obviously, it's not like financial planning firms all over the place are doing this, that we have a solid model to follow. Right now, he's a contractor for us. So he gets paid a percentage that does get paid to you know his business. But okay. then we provide some, you know, we provide him with an email address. We provide him with the benchmark database. We, you know, we provide some things to him that he pays us for. Um, my dream would be that we can ramp up that line of business enough that we could bring him in as a partner someday. Um, it's just, just I, a volume thing, right? You just do exactly. You need enough clients coming in with enough negotiations that there's enough things to do that it makes sense to have a full time person doing it. Exactly. Yeah. And and just out of curiosity for my own, just sheer education, <laughs> like what kind of comp does a negotiator get for that? Like how. How much of the higher offer do you do you get? Because that could add up pretty quickly in high income fields. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he has it set up so that he gets a percentage. It's just like a sports agent, right? He's representing them. He's negotiating for them. And so he is getting 10% of the added value that he gets them in their compensation. Uh, and just like as a one-time pay, it's not like he gets a, a trail where you're paying him. There's a limit to it. Yeah, I don't remember all life. of this. Yeah, I don't remember all of the specifics of how we worked it out, but it's like it. it yeah, it's not okay. in perpetuity. It might be a you know three year contract, and so maybe he gets okay. you know gets that for that period of time. But I don't. I don't yeah. remember all of the specifics. But yeah, that's. I mean, right, and just everybody's winning. That's actually a you know yeah ten percent of two hundred fifty thousand is a big, a big number, but negotiating up two hundred fifty thousand is a huge thing for as you noted, like oh. A, just when the numbers get that big, a lot of people aren't really sure whether to negotiate or how to negotiate or like, you know, how, right. I mean, you know, is it, is it ungrateful to negotiate your $400,000 salary up to seven fifty? It's like, well, yeah, if you're that underpaid, like if you're going, well, and if you're going to deliver up. that value and that's why we use those benchmarks, right? We're not coming right. up with these numbers out of thin air. Right, and right. in this case, I mean, I don't want to say that that's the result that, you know, we get every time, but well, in this yeah, case, it, they were bringing this doctor in to build a program at their hospital. So if he does his job well, he's going to be delivering massive value to yeah. the hospital that they're going to collect on in perpetuity. And it's going to help give them a competitive advantage in their market. And so part of that negotiation strategy is really helping a doctor understand what is that value that you're bringing? And then let's go get you paid for that. The worst that can happen is they say no. And then you know you got the best offer you could. Right, right. But every now and then you negotiate a six-figure raise for a client who has a, a lot more income and savings and, well, you know, probably lifetime gratitude. That I mean, that's exactly that's a lot of years of advisory fees. Yes. <laughs> Put it mildly. <laughs> yeah, that's a really, really satisfied client. And that's uh -huh. obviously what we're trying to accomplish here. Uh-huh. So are, are there like, are there other things in here? I kind of paused you on that one, but uh, like, are, are there other, other services either in the, in the sort of the value proposition overall or the like things for things for physicians in particular dynamic? Yeah, there are. Um, I mean, I mentioned shopping the physician mortgages. So we have those contacts all over the country and obviously know a lot of the, you know, most popular products inside and out um, from that and, perspective. And it's, and it's different for, 
it's different for physicians, I guess, for folks in private practice because of all the weird mortgage underwriting dynamics for yeah. business owners in general. Yeah. So we can help them figure out when is the right time to buy. And then, you know, just like any other advisor, do we start with a starter home, you know, and then upgrade or do we go for the, you know, the forever home right off the right off the bat? Um, so we and then disability insurance is another big thing that we do help with. We have, you know, our own insurance agency and then a partner that we work with to do that. Um, and I think that's an area where doctors get blown up figuratively in their inboxes. You know, everyone is trying to get a doctor a disability mm. insurance policy. And honestly, I think this is a place where the insurance industry has done a disservice to physicians because when I go give um, educational presentations, like Vanderbilt's right across the street from me, I go give an educational presentation over there. I ask them what they know about disability insurance. Like, what's our baseline? Where are we starting? And they're like, all I know is I get 17 emails about it a day. I don't know what I need. Uh I don't know who to trust. And so I'm just ignoring it. And that to me is like, holy cow, we are failing this subset of the population (sighs) who could lose their entire future income in some cases just from the loss of a finger, right? Or a slight tremor. They need disability insurance. And yet because they're getting hounded for it as you know, the like just to make a buck, <laughs> it's yeah. actually producing the opposite of our intended results. And so that's an area where, you know, we definitely focus on that as a portion of the early planning and a lot of our education um, because that's something that's essential for physicians to have and to be able to get and understand from someone who's independent and who they can trust. And and did you say you you actually have a insurance division or like a, a, a brokerage relationship or a general agency relationship that you're, yes, you're facilitating we, this? Yeah. So we have a we have an agency relationship that we use for that. We don't do it all in house. Um, we'll help with the selection of like what company are we going to use, how are we going to structure the policy, all of that sort of thing. But then the work, like the application, the underwriting, and all of that is driven through the agency. Uh, and and can I ask like who do you who do you work with that helps to facilitate that for a firm like yours? We use um, they're called Secura Consultants. Okay, and and how does that work? I guess just from the uh, like the business economics and like do you because there's a lot of dollars at at stake mm-hmm. when when physician disability insurance gets gets written. So are you? Are you actually participating that? Is that part of the overall business model or is that purely referred out? You have just like a consultant's hat? Yeah. So we do participate in that. Um, Again, it's a way that we add value for the clients. And so I I have never had anything wrong with getting paid if we are delivering value and doing it with excellence, right? Um, And so that's the approach that we've taken. What we do though, we have a separate pot, if you will, for insurance revenue. And we don't pay that directly to any one advisor. (laughs) We split that pot. And so that kind of curbs the concern about incentives, right? Even though all of our advisors are fantastic people and I would trust them to do my own financial plan or insurance policy or what have you in a heartbeat, um, that just gives us that extra layer of confidence that we're doing the right thing because no one's getting paid those individual commissions. Oh, interesting. So so it's, it's it's an offering of the firm overall revenue that's generated is is revenue for the firm but advisor level compensation to the extent that they're they're compensated for clients they've got or revenue they produce like that's that's not part of their revenue compensation pot correct yeah and so is that just become i mean functionally like part of this the business's income and profitability overall do you like yeah. put these into a I don't know, like a generic bonus pool that everybody participates in. Just, I mean, just, yeah, it just, and I'm just like, how do you account for that in your, in your head? Cause it's, it's easy when it, 
ties to advisor companies. You just like give them their their yeah. uh, their revenue sharing percentage. So if you're not doing that, like how do you think through just the like the the mental accounting of how, where those dollars go? Yeah, no, it's a fair question. We have a line item for insurance revenue in our you know income expenses profit, and so it just essentially go. There's a little bit of expense for that business line, right? But then it essentially just goes into profit. Okay. So, so you're getting deeper in areas like physician mortgages, physician disability insurance, physician contract negotiations. Mm-hmm. Uh, are, are, are there other areas as well or are those the core pieces that you're doing? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the core of it. The other big one that we just have to address as part of our financial planning process is student loan repayment. Um, And that's actually, I mean, that game has changed drastically in the last few months with some of the Biden administration's changes to their policies for public service loan forgiveness, um, because most hospitals actually are 501c3s. And so Mm. there are a lot of physicians who previously because they didn't have the right type of loans or it didn't, you know, they had low interest loans and it didn't make sense to have them making as high of payments, um, weren't going to qualify Mm. for that program that now do. So that I would not have said six months ago that that was a huge value add area for us. Um, But it has become that very quickly. You're digging in to help them understand the new guidance. Does your loan qualify? Does it not qualify? How close to the 10 year window are you? Because some of your time qualify, but some of your time didn't like you get to right. reconst- so one, reconstruct I mean, all that for them now. One of my favorite client stories of late, I have this client um, and doctors are, they make really good money, but they also have a lot of expenses. And I'm in Nashville and, you know, a lot of doctors are sending their kids to private school and then they have their own student loans to pay off. And right. they also have to start saving for their kids college because they're not going to be able to get help with that. And um, so there's just a lot of demands on that cash flow, just like at any other income level, I presume. Um, and so so this was a client of mine I've worked with for over a decade. Every meeting, she has student loans that are under 2%. Every meeting, she's like, Lauren, can we make faster progress on the student loans? And I have to have that trade-offs conversation. Like we could, but something else would have to give because we don't just have extra money to throw at it. Right. And so the approach that she had been taking was like she would pick up some extra shifts and then whatever she would get as bonus, you know, quote bonus for those extra shifts would go toward the student loans, but they just weighed on her. They just weighed on her. She felt like that was standing in the way of her really feeling like she owned her financial plan. And this these new guidelines came out and and I'm like, oh my gosh, she should qualify. And so I said, it was a Saturday morning. I sent her an email. Hey, I don't know if you've seen the headlines, um, but here's this program. Here's how it works. I really think you'd qualify. Could we jump on a Zoom and I can look at your loan account and we can we can check it out? And she immediately replies, absolutely. I saw those headlines. I just assumed that it didn't apply to me. <laughs> but yes, please, let's check. So we check. She All of her loans are the right type. But, you know, So we, we go through the process. She called me two weeks ago on a Friday morning and she's like, Lauren, my loans are gone. She's like, I'm in my account. She's like, I don't even know what to do right now. My loans are gone. I mean, she's crying with, uh, with joy. Wow. Um, and she's like, I never would have known about this if not for you. And I'm just like, oh my gosh. I mean, talk about transformational value. Mm. She said to me, I feel like I have my life back. And I'm like, oh my gosh. I mean, this is, this is what we're here for, right? Yeah. And so again, I go back to that power of the niche. If I had 
a handful of physician clients because they had high incomes or portfolio values or whatever, but I did physicians and attorneys and business owners and quote anyone with income, I would not have been able to send her that email and say, hey, I'm thinking about you. I think you qualify because I've just had this conversation 10 other times, right? And so that's like, to me, that's the real power of like, this is all we do. And then we can deliver that much bigger value to clients because of it. So how do, how does the fee model work for you guys? Like what do you what do you charge at the end of the day for all the different stuff stuff that you're doing under the umbrella for physicians? Yeah, so we um we do charge for a new client coming in. We do charge a fee for kind of that initial process of creating the financial plan. So we spend a lot of time with them up front. We take them through an exercise to kind of uncover their priorities and what's important to them. Obviously, then we're doing the financial documents and crafting the, you know, work optional plan and the debt repayment, you know, all of the stuff that you would do in creating a comprehensive financial plan. Um, We charge for that as a standalone fee. Um, And that ranges on the low end, like for a physician just coming out of training, we charge $4,000 for that. Um, And that can go all the way up to like 12,000, depending on complexity and how many investments they've gotten themselves into all the time, you know, over time, because doctors get hit up for everything under the sun, Mm -hmm. Um, kind of what work is going to go into creating that plan. Then for ongoing service, you know, for like, let's work together um, over the long term, we have two service models. We call um, the one that the majority of doctors will choose to engage us is called Collaborate. And that's a, we are proactive to uncover all of these opportunities for them and drive them to make things happen. Again, they're very busy people. (laughs) They need a lot of touch points to move to action. And so that we charge a financial planning fee. It's the, you know, monthly subscription model between 500 and a thousand dollars. Again, just based on how much they have going on and how much we're going to need to do. Um, So $500,000 per month. Correct. Okay. Per month. Um, And then for our on-call model, so this is like you got the financial plan, you're good on, you know, you think you can drive it. Like you can check the boxes, you can maintain this, like you might need our help every now and again. Um, We have an hourly model that we use for that. And we have different price points, again, go back to the law firm, for who on our team does the work. So my client service administrator, her name is Annie. Um, her fee is not going to be what my fee is. <laughs> and what I tell clients is we will we will drive your request to the lowest cost provider who can do it with excellence. So I'm not going to have Annie try to do something that she doesn't have the capability to do to save them a buck. <laughs> but if she if it's a paperwork thing that she can do, they don't need to pay my rate for that. So that's the planning side. And then we do manage investments as well on either model. That's a requirement for kind of the ongoing services that we manage their investments. Um, And we actually just charge half a percent for that. Interesting. All right. So a couple of, of questions for these. First, so I'm, I'm struck for the the hourly model. You you kind of noted that in the full range from like a, a CSA supporting administrative uh, help on on some paperwork that needs to be done up to up to you know questions that come to you as a partner. So in in your hourly model, are are you literally billing all the way down to like admin support staff work? As opposed to a lot of firms I know that that like that bill the advisor's time, but only bill the advisor's time. Yeah, we do have a rate for our CSAs, for our planners, and for our lead advisor, partner advisors. Um, and so, I mean, there's a lot that comes in. Again, 
busy people, they need help with sometimes very simple yeah. things. And so they can reach out, they can pay, you know, a hundred bucks and get that taken care of. Um, it, I don't have the percentage breakdown for who chooses what, but yeah. um, for the most part, our on-call clients are either asset management only for you know, all intents and purposes, like they really don't have other things that come up that they need help with, or yeah. it's very, very limited. So it sounds cumbersome as I'm talking about it, like, oh my gosh, how would you operationalize that and invoice well, and all that? Because it's if they want really a lot of it, they tend to just go to the collaborative model exactly. in the first place. Or if we – and we help guide them, right? We create that financial plan. That The whole point of that is so that we can get to know each other. And we can, we've done this for long enough. We can pick up on, in the course of that process, how responsive are they? How many reminders right. do they need? How with it are they when it comes to what we're talking about and just their ability to execute? And neither is good or bad, right? There are things like I'm a very capable, intelligent, competent person – and if it's something tech, I am useless. <laughs> like I need help. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's it's just like that where um, we can kind of figure that out as we go. And I cannot think of a time where we got to the end of that plan creation. We start talking about ongoing service and where I thought they were going to go, you know, on call versus collaborate was different when where they thought they should go because you can just tell. You know, we lay that groundwork as we go through the process and they know exactly what they need to get the value that they're looking for from us. And and where do those hourly rates range for you? I mean, just you had mentioned $100. Like, is that actually your your rate at where your CSAs start? It is. Yeah. So for CSAs time, and again, we, we would like people to choose collaborate because it's easier Understood. for us to just manage everything and have our hands in everything. I've always said that like all great advisors have a measure of being a control freak. That's just how it works. And so we would rather have our hands in everything, you know, uh -huh. mm -hmm. but our client service administrators are a hundred dollars an hour. Um, then we have planners that are at two fifty or three fifty, and then, um, lead advisor partners that are at uh, 500. Okay. And so on the, on the collaborative model, so you'd set a, a, a monthly subscription fee of 500 to to $1,000 a month. So what determines where they fall in that range? Like, is that a, an income size thing or a complexity thing or like a tier, there's, are there tiers of service within the 500 to 1,000 range? Like where, how does a client land at a particular point in the 500 to 1,000 uh, range? Yeah, it's complexity driven. We started out with this fancy Excel calculator. We thought we were amazing. You know, we put all these different metrics in and you fill stuff in and it spits out a price. And we quickly realized that was the opposite of scalable because one, you actually had to do the calculator. You always had to do the calculator. And then it was spitting out prices like, you know, 4,372. And it's like, so we just had all these different price points that people were at. It was a mess. And so we quickly realized that was not going to work. What we moved to was just tiers. So we have low, medium, and high complexity. It's actually as simple as that. Um, we have a couple of price points within each tier, which is really what I call the hassle factor. So where they fit for low, medium, or high is based on their objective metrics, right? Income, do they have business income? Do they have, you know, kids that we're also doing college plans for? We have different criteria that um, go into that. And I know those in my head. All of our advisors know what those are. We know if people are going to be low, medium, or high because it's simple. Then sure. we do have a little bit of variation within each tier. Like there's a low and a high for medium, for example, for the price. And that is 
I mean, we all know we have some clients who objectively are medium complexity, but they call you all the time. (laughs) They're going to need to pay that higher hassle factor fee um, versus someone who's medium and is not really going to be bugging you. They're going to be on the the other price point. And because you do a separate planning process for a separate fee before they get to the ongoing model, you've got a sense as to what it's going to be like to work with them already because you, you, exactly. you've done initial engagement. That's the dating period. That's And that's what I tell clients even. I'm like, I used to start working with a new client and I wanted to, I was like, this is going to be great. We're going to be together for life. And sometimes that just doesn't work out. And it's not a bad thing. It's just sometimes our personalities don't mesh. Sometimes what we're delivering is not what they're looking for. I mean, sometimes it just doesn't work out. And so that's kind of our dating period. And then we are really, really sure that it's going to be a you know, very good long-term relationship before we go into that engagement. And just, I got to ask, like, do you... Do you tell clients there's a hassle factor in no. the, the price? <laughs> Not in those I, terms, I should say. Not in those terms. Yeah, I'd say um, like, how do you describe it? Because I'm, I'm imagining you may very well say like our fee, our fee varies from five hundred to a thousand dollars a month. It depends on the complexity of your situation. Like that's a straightforward thing to say to clients. Like, do you? How do you explain the other factor, or do you just not really I, talk about it? I think we get on our heads about this. Um, I was just talking to a colleague about this actually recently when it came to something he wanted to address with one of his employees. And I'm like, here's the thing. Like we work this up to be this big thing, but people know themselves. Like very rarely do you meet someone who's like, yeah, I call you all the time. I have one client. I'm not going to say his name, but he comes to mind. He calls me all the time. He's a delightful guy. I love helping him. He knows he calls me all the time. You know, and so it's like, if you, here's your complexity level. And then because we do stay in very close touch and we talk so regularly and you do reach out to me with things whenever they're on their mind, I want to be able to provide that for you. I want to make sure that I'm being well compensated for the time that I'm spending with you so that I can always pick up the phone when you call. This is what that's going to cost. And he's happy to pay it. And so then you said you know, you've got an investment management component of this as well, uh, charging 50 basis points. Mm-hmm. So is that just a, a flat 50 across the board or you like graduated fee schedule, you know, higher on small dollar amounts, lower on, on big dollar amounts or just like it's one flat rate? That's the It's deal. pretty much one flat rate across the board. We are working on because um, we have had some clients that are just much larger portfolio relationships. And our, I mean, our clients span the spectrum of they have no money because they're actually just coming out of training as right. physicians. Might, They've had no might be high, high income, but no assets, mostly debt. Exactly. Yeah. And then we also have doctors who have been in practice for 20 years and have accumulated right. quite a bit of wealth. And so we are working on what that looks like on the higher end um, so that we can make that standardized, but pretty much right now it's a flat 50, no matter where you are. Okay. Okay. And, um, uh, and, and I guess no minimums because again, you've got people that are really running the spectrum if you're actually working with doctors just getting started. Right. So that's where the financial planning fee comes into play. And that's why we intentionally split the two of those is because we didn't want to say you have to have a certain amount of money to work with us. Because again, that's counter to who our target client is and who the people are that we want to be able to help. So if you say, you know, you have to have $500,000 to work with us, you've just alienated arguably the group of doctors that most need your help. Right. And uh, and so I'm thinking about this traditional, well, right or wrong, like traditional industry rule of thumb is is the proverbial 1% fee. Mm-hmm. But most advisors don't charge separately for planning. And, and we kind of say like the planning is is wrapped into the fee. So I, I guess I'm just wondering, is, is, it, is it a conscious decision to say like, 
since we charge more for, or at least charge separately for the planning work, so we're always getting paid for the planning work, therefore we're going to have a lower than 1% AUM fee because we've compartmentalized this? Like, Is that a, a conscious part of the pricing strategy or just how the math worked out for you? It's a conscious part of the pricing strategy. We primarily use dimensional funds, asset allocation, um, you know, there's no real secret sauce to how we're managing investments, so to speak. We do it because our clients want us to do it. And so we said, look, we're going to do that at what we think is a fair price. And realizing that the value, if you go talk to our clients about like what value does Vestia bring to you, most of what they say is not going to be investments. It's going to be everything else that we've talked yeah, about. Like, you got me another $100,000 out of my hospital gig. When I became a surgeon, like, yeah. Yeah. Or you helped me get all these student loans, forget or whatever. And so they, they understand that like we're, you know, we are charging for that to be proactive and be, you know, on their team. And then we are not charging as much on the investment management because we're doing that really just as a convenience to them. And we're doing it well, don't get me wrong, but that's not, we're not trying to make that the, um, you know, what we lead with in terms of the value we deliver. And, and so how, I guess talk to us a little bit about the just the this monthly subscription fee at five hundred to a thousand dollars a month, right? That's six to twelve thousand dollars a year. I mean that that in and of itself is a pretty sizable dollar amount for any sort of any advisory firm serving serving clients. Uh, never mind like before AUM comes in the picture as well, and and potentially with people who don't even have assets yet. Uh, I'm, I'm presuming just at the end of the day, like this works because relative to a doctor's income and relative to how a doctor values their time, because they make a lot of income mm-hmm. on their time, like just the math just works like they're, uh, they're fine with it. Yeah, that's exactly it. And also, I mean, we are, again, go back to like, they're very busy. We're doing a lot for them, right? They need to do their estate planning. We're packaging up all their information, sending it over. Some of them don't even know how to get it. Um, you know, we're shopping out their mortgages. We're shopping their refinances. We are trying to do, you know, we're trying to be that first assist. And that is providing the value for them. I mean, a lot of them are paying, if you think about the houses that they live in, that, you know, the house cleaner, the laundry service, the meal prep service, like they are paying for people to save them time so that the time they do have outside of the hospital, they can spend doing things that are meaningful to them. And so we are, you know, dare I say, like just one of those services, we are one of those services that help them get return on their time. And they're very happy to pay us to be that. And just when you work with folks that make hundreds of thousands of dollars, just the math is manageable, right? I mean, I just think about it, $6,000 a year for, you know, a a doctor making $350,000, like it's, it's not even 2% of their income. Right. It just, that's, that's not cheap, but Less than 2% of their income is a pretty straightforward, like, oh, I get a bunch of time back for this? Cool. Yeah. And I always tell clients, I don't ever want them to feel like they're paying us for something that we're not delivering, nor do I want us to feel like we're doing a bunch of work to the, for, for them that we're not getting paid adequately for. And so I'm like, as long as you feel like you're getting the value you're paying for, and I feel like I'm being well compensated for what I deliver for you, then we're great. And so I've got to ask then just relative to a lot of right, industry trends and discussion around things like fiduciary and fee only. So you, you like, you've got this planning fee and assets under management fee, but you do have an insurance component that, mm-hmm. that limits you on the, the, the fee only side. Like, is that a concern for you? Is that not an issue for you? Is that a you know, business decision trade-off for you? Like, how do you, how do you think about that relative to all the industry discussion around f- fees and commissions? 
It's a great question. Um, I go back to we designed our service model and what we are directly involved in based on what our clients want us to do for them. So if they said, no, we'll go to Joe, whoever, and get our disability insurance, that's not a problem, then great. We could be fee only. <laughs> right? Yeah. But that's not what they're saying. They're saying, we know you, we trust you. You come highly recommended right. by my mentor. Like, I want you to do this for me. And I would, I, I'm totally fine with you getting paid in order to do that. You know, we are independent. So and oftentimes when we're doing a disability insurance policy for a client, for example, I'm showing them more than one quote and I'm showing them, you know, what the what the features are of the policy and why I am recommending the policy that I am. And so I I feel like we would be doing them less of a service if we were so wrapped up in the nomenclature that we weren't delivering what they want from us. And I guess the flip side is and and you're not getting pushback in prospect meetings of, of of prospects saying, well, we were thinking about working with you, but you're not fee only. So let's talk about that. No, not at all. I mean, we do get the question sometimes because, you know, you Google questions, ask a financial advisor and uh -huh. you it's will see that question. Yeah. And so we get it. But when we can explain it in those terms, they think it makes a lot of sense. And again, doctors will get a referral fee in some cases. Well, it's not called a referral fee because that's not legal, but they will get incentives to, you know, do procedures at a certain surgery center, right? Or their hospital has a contract with a certain, um, you know, material provider or whatever. And so that's not, uh, that's not a foreign concept to them either. They know that you can do great work and, right. you know, there may be some fees involved in that. And so when we can explain that and the reason behind it, um, I have not, to, I mean, to my knowledge, we have not lost a prospect because we are not fee only. So walk us through a little bit more of just the actual, I guess, like the planning process. I mean, just I, I come to Vestia and I'm interested in planning and I've got my four to $12,000 planning fee. And I say, you know, I'm a physician. You got, you all specialize in physicians. This sounds great. Sign me up. Like, so what happens next? I mean, what, like, what's the actual planning process of what you do for clients in that initial planning phase? Yeah. So actually before we even, so we start with just a phone call, just, you know, get to know each other, phone call. Sometimes now that's a zoom, but, um, you know, just kind of get to know each other a little bit. And then the first step in our process. So we actually have used FinLife. Um, it's through Gold and Sachs used to be United Capital. We've used the FinLife process in our client onboarding. Before we make the final decision that we are going to work together, we do what we call our values meeting. And that is based on the FinLife Honest Conversations exercise. You can look it up if you're not familiar with it. Um, but essentially, it takes... Um, it takes these prospects through ranking their priorities, like rank ordering their priorities and deciding what different things mean to them, like the risk of losing a loved one or the risk of not having enough money to retire. Like, what do these things mean to you and which one weighs on you the most? Um, I have always loved the question. I don't always ask it in these words, but I want to know what keeps them up at night. And that is just because two prospective clients might come to me that look very similar on paper, right? They both are even sometimes the same type, type of physician. They may be neighbors, <laughs> um, similar financial pictures. What's important to them might be wildly different. And so we start with that values meeting so that we can really understand them. We can speak very specifically to what we will do to solve their problems or to alleviate what weighs on them. 
And then, then we kind of say, you know, here's what the financial plan will entail. We'll give them a final, we give them a range of price in the beginning, but then we say, this is how much it will cost to do that. They make the decision at that point to move forward. Um, and then it's the getting the financial documents and creating the actual financial plan from there. There's probably three meetings that, um, you know, we're doing kind of active plan presentation um, so that we can go through like the full spectrum of work optional plan, like all the way through estate planning. Well, so, so how do you actually separate out those meetings? Like what are the, what are the incremental meetings? Yeah, it depends on the client. And again, this is what I really like about the values meeting if they tell you, I'll actually use a story about my own father to illustrate this point. So he was looking for an advisor. This was years and years ago, but he was looking for an advisor. Um, he had been uh, medical malpractice and, you know, medical malpractice lawsuits are, it's not an if for a lot of doctors, it's a when, right? And so he had been through a lawsuit and it terrified him. And all he cared about, he did not care about his own retirement. All he cared about at that point was an asset protection strategy. That's what he cared about. And so he went to an advisor and, you know, they're asking about what's important to him and, you know, whatever questions they're asking. This was before I was in the business, but um, they're asking these questions and he is saying repeatedly in different words over and over and over, he wants asset protection. (laughs) Like this is what's important to him. He wants to understand what assets are vulnerable, which ones are not. Um, This is another thing that is value add that we do for physicians is we just know how these things work, right? And that advisor was so focused on the delivery of the retirement plan and more importantly, the taking over of the investments that he didn't focus on that asset protection plan. He lost my father as a client. (laughs) I mean, it was a perspective, right? He was a prospective client. Mm -hmm. My father did not decide to work with him. He found another guy who was like, great, we'll lead with the asset protection. This is how we're going to do this. I'm going to get you connected with this attorney. You know, he flesh the whole thing out. And that was how he got that client. And so I have always taken the approach. And again, this was before I even started. So since I started my practice, I have always taken the approach of, I need to figure out, and this is how we've taught our our whole advisory team to approach this. We have to figure out what is most important to that client. And then we need to prioritize accordingly because that will help differentiate what we can deliver. Um, And we're going to do the whole thing, right? We're going to do the tax return review. We're going to do the risk management. Like we're going to do all of the things. We just might order them differently based on what is important to that client so that we are hitting what's most important to them first and not glossing over that. So does it actually end out, I guess, I don't know, just modularized that way? Like we're going to do three meetings. Number one is the thing you're anxious about that just we're going to solve for. Number two is your retirement projections. Number three is your insurance in the state. Like is it is it broken apart that way where you're like you're mixing and matching modules or is it even more just flexible? We're going to have a couple of meetings, but we're totally it's, taking the client's cue on how we're tackling this. Yeah, it's very flexible. So um, in our process map that we show clients, there's one block for that design, like that collaborative process. And it says two to three meetings. <laughs> so it's like, we will work two to three meetings to get all of this straightened out. And that's how that part of it works. We haven't defined what goes into what meeting for that reason. So then walk me through at a high level what the process map does say then. So like intro meeting, um, Finlife's Honest Conversations, 
Mm-hmm. We call that our values meeting. Okay. Yep. Then we have our um, then we have our kind of plan presentation. It's a collaborative process, right? We're getting feedback from them. We're kind of optimizing, and then our last our last meeting is our action plan. So that's where we will go through. You know, here are all the decisions that we made over the course of the planning process. Here's who is going to take responsibility for those actions, how those are going to be accomplished, and then that's where we talk about. You know, do you want us to drive this, or do you want to drive this? Okay. And so action plan meeting kind of gets down to here are your recommendations. If you would like to go forth and implement these, we're happy to be available on call. If you would like to work with us to implement these, we'd love to introduce you to our collaborative arrangement. Here's how it works. Yeah. And I would say it's even more um, more intentional than that, again, because we've gotten to know them over the course of that process. And so as we're going through, you know, it's like sometimes that list is incredibly daunting to a busy physician. And it's like, we can do all of this for you. We can drive this process. And here's what that looks like. You know, we also do have an hourly arrangement if you want to do it, but I don't get the sense that that's probably what you're looking for. And they're like, no, 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 we want the collaborate. <laughs> Well, and just in in general, right, there there is kind of a natural self-selection bias of you know, people who will pay you thousands of dollars for your planning advice usually don't then say like, cool, I'm done, peace out. Now I just want to be DIY. You got it. So, I, so I'm presuming then just in practice, most clients who pay for an upfront plan end up going all the way through and signing on into the collaborative phase. Yeah, that's the... That is by far the most popular service model. And again, we do have some that do, you know, they do the hourly, but it's more an asset management only. Like they just don't have a lot of other stuff going on. There's a little more of an autopilot there. Um, but that's a lot of our clients are in the accumulation phase. And so there's just a lot going on. And do you ever consider a realm of, hey, if this many clients go through and become collaborative clients anyways, and collaborative clients are good long-term business for us, maybe we don't want to charge for the upfront plan because we just want to get them in as ongoing clients? Like, Do you do you worry about that tension back and forth of who didn't become an ongoing because they just didn't want to pay upfront? Yeah. It's funny that you say that because that's actually something that we are reevaluating right now, especially what we found is for more established doctors who are extremely busy and they've got, you know, kids in all kinds of different sports and they just, you know, their life is other level busy. That has sometimes been an impediment. And so, you know, we've gone quote off book (laughs) and gone sometimes um, past that initial plan phase or, you know, charge for that a little bit differently or whatever. And so we actually have a project that we have a small group right now who is working on figuring out what we want to do there. Um, If we always want to do the upfront planning fee, if that's something that we will do away with, if there's a certain subset of doctors who maybe we don't do that with and we have a different process. So a little bit of to be determined on that. And then what's the ongoing process or value proposition? I mean, I get the domains of expertise, but you know, if I'm if I'm paying five hundred to a thousand dollars a month, like what am I getting month to month or quarter to quarter or throughout the year to to give me value for this five hundred to a thousand dollar a month payment? We have an annual service calendar. This probably sounds very familiar to you because we got the idea from a blog post of yours. But we do have an annual Yeah, we do have an annual service calendar that's crafted around different things that physicians do at different points during the year. Um, You know, when their contracts tend to come up for renewal, for example, when their open enrollment is, when, you know, their disability insurance policies probably come up for a potential increase. And so we've kind of mapped all of that out. And for the Collaborate model, that's where we own that. Like they will hear from us if there is something that they need to be thinking about. They don't have to keep track of all of that stuff. Um, That's what that is meant for. And we do two intentional meetings per year, but we are available to them for phone calls or 
emails or whatever they need or whatever comes up at any point during the year. They all have like we have texting phone numbers that they can all reach us via text message and that's all archived. Um, and that's huge. That has skyrocketed their ability to stay in great communication with us because I think you're in the hospital, you're busy, you're in a case, like it's very easy to shoot off a text message. It was not always as easy for them to pick up the phone and call or have to foray into you know the barrage of emails or whatever in order to get to us. Interesting. I, I feel like that's a that's like a doctor specific thing that probably comes from the legacy of like having pagers that they're just yeah. really used to like thumbing out text messages, but not not sending emails. Yes. So I, out of curiosity, like what what do you use just to handle and support all the text messaging? Because that's actually a challenge in and of itself for some firms. Yeah, we use a program, and I am not in charge of our tech. I will say up front. So I. I may not speak super well on this, but um, we use a program called Ring Central. We all have business phone numbers that come in through Ring Central. So they come to our computers. There's also an app that comes to our phone, and then that's all archived through Smarsh. Okay. Okay. Very cool. So, so ongoing service is this combination of two intentional meetings a year, and then you've got these touch points around a lot of physician-specific issues, like when does your compensation contract come up for renewal? When is your like DI policy renew? When you're when you have your annual employee benefits enrollment, and like is that when you time the meetings, or are those between meeting touch points? Those are usually between meeting touch points. We tried to set up our service so that we did not have to, because I mean, again, busy people, like they have the best of intentions and they don't always actually click on the link to schedule the meeting. Right. right. And then it's like, oh my gosh, four, four months have gone by. Like now it's time for the next meeting. And I never even scheduled the last one. And so we have set up that service calendar so that those reminders just automatically kick off to us. And the intended result there is that even if a client misses both of their annual meetings with us, we have still done all of those things that we needed to do for them. And that's the value, again, of them paying us for that collaborate model. Okay. And uh, and and as you queue that up, how are you tracking that internally? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that's CRM based. Yeah, we use Salesforce. And so that's all in there. Okay. So share with us a little bit just the journey of like how you came to the point that you're you know, launching and now building uh, Vestia? Like what was the, what was the path for you in the industry? Yeah. So a little bit of a turn uh, off of the firm and onto me. So I actually started, um, I I did an econ and finance major at Vanderbilt. That's what brought me to Nashville, which is where I still am. And I, um, I had been studying abroad during my junior year and I totally missed the boat for summer internships. I just completely missed the boat. Like I was in this, you know, la da 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 da. Like I just came back from being abroad. Life's amazing. Um, everyone has internships. I'm like, oh my gosh, I need an internship. Right. <laughs> and so I mentioned earlier that my uh, father's a cardiologist. And so he and my mom had actually gone to this workshop that was put on by a financial advisor that worked specifically with physicians. And so they were just telling me about this. I was like, oh, that actually sounds kind of interesting. <laughs> So I called that firm. I asked if they needed a summer intern. They said, actually, funny you call. We just were talking about hiring a summer intern. So the stars kind of aligned. I interned for that firm for that summer. I loved it. Um, I was doing so much. I was in the investment department. Um, I was 
preparing reports. I was like running daily stuff. I was preparing proposals for like rebalancing. Um, obviously, the advisors were reviewing all of this work. Right, um, right. But I was doing a lot, so much so that they actually hired a full-time person to replace me when my summer internship <laughs> was over, which was awesome. Um, so I remember Awkward, there was... flattering. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Um there was a there was a happy hour like the night before my last day there was a happy hour and you know it was great and i made great friends there and the next day um the one of the advisors at that firm had me come into his office and he said you know, we've really appreciated all of your work. You've been, you know, well beyond what we would have imagined for an intern. When you are, you know, coming out of school looking for a job, we would love to have you back as a client service manager. Mm -hmm. So keep my number, give me a call. To me, you know, young female who's, you know, I'm like, getting a degree from Vanderbilt. I'm like doing a whole real job in the investment department. Mm -hmm. That felt a little bit deflating to me. Um, it felt a little bit dejecting. And so I went back, I finished my senior year at Vanderbilt. I was looking for advisory jobs in Nashville. I did not call that firm <laughs> just because, you know, that was in my head. Like I just, I didn't feel great about it. And so I had been talking to like four or five different firms in Nashville. I was going through their interview process. Interestingly enough, it came up at some point further into the interview process with every single one of these firms. They asked me some question about, if we hire you, you will be our only female advisor here. Like, what do you think about that? And, um, you know, it just, it seemed like I didn't belong, but this was what I really wanted to do. Uh -oh. And uh, I guess the that prior firm got wind of the fact that I was looking for a job in the industry and they actually called me, hey, we'd love to have you back. And I, you know, why didn't you call us? And I said, well, you had mentioned that you would have a client service manager position for me and I really want to be an advisor. So if you would like to interview me as an advisor, I'm very interested. If not, like, I'm just going to take my chances here, <laughs> you know? So they actually did. They interviewed me, um, you know, put me through like three interviews to be an advisor. Why they hired a 21-year-old fresh out of college who was just wide-eyed and thought she could take on the world, I, to this day, don't know. But I am very, very grateful they did because <laughs> I wouldn't be where I am without someone having given me a chance. Mm -hmm. And so they brought me on. I actually... That firm had a um, an expansive breadth strategy. So they had very small offices in a lot of different cities across the country. And then kind of some like more senior advisors who would travel around and help the younger advisors in the different offices. So I started in Nashville. I had the background of coming from, you know, my father being a physician, understanding, you know, what my mom went through as a result of that, what, you know, stresses that put on our family. Um, I didn't know a lot about financial planning, but I did understand that if people knew I could solve their problems, <laughs> that they were endeared to want to work with me. And, you know, if I, if I could present a valuable solution to them, they kind of bridged the gap and made the assumption that, you know, I had access to a firm and I could also figure out solutions to their other problems. <laughs> so mm -hmm. um, I did a lot of educational workshops Initially, I got help from a more senior advisor there doing those, and then I took those over myself. Um, so for a few years, I did a lot of those, and I would just fill those up, you know, different topics that would be interesting to physicians. Um, and then I quickly pivoted into a referral-heavy strategy because I enjoyed building relationships and figuring out how I could help the people that I, you know, already really cared about that already really valued me. Um, and so that was kind of how I was growing my practice. So you pivot into a more referral heavy strategy, meaning you got to a, a critical mass and number of clients so that you could get referrals from them. Yes. I never did a lot of COIs. This was all client to 
new prospect. Um, what I realized was that, I mean, putting on like workshops and presentations and events and all that takes a lot of energy and a lot of money. And what I realized was that if I could just continually remind clients of what I had done to help them, like, hey, when we started working together, you were here. And you remember you had all these concerns. And I am so, it is so exciting to me that now you are here. And this is how you're telling me you feel. Like, I'm so proud that we did that together. If there are people like friends of yours, colleagues of yours who are the before, <laughs> I would love to have a conversation with them. Okay. Um, very non pressure, very authentic. I played with that a lot so that it sounded very natural for me. And I think planting those seeds over time. Um, at one point, I was bringing on four new clients a month. That firm had a very quantity heavy strategy, not quality. So, you know, keep that in mind. But I was bringing on four new clients a month Me that were all meaning like referrals. Didn't necessarily have to be very affluent. Anybody who, who was able to fit would qualify. Yeah, still physicians, but it was like they could be a physician that, you know, had no money and also still had five years to go in their medical training. They were not going to have money for the foreseeable future. Okay, so like and they're, that, they're, they're not even paying much of any planning fee. Like maybe, maybe you get to open an IRA for them. But hey, they're exactly. exactly. Yeah. Um, so I was with that firm for seven and a half years. And um, I don't know if you've ever seen the Pixar short Pearl, P-U-R-L. Have you ever heard of that? I have not. I have not. Look it up. I would encourage anyone who's listening, look it up because I saw that. Um, it is about a ball of yarn named Pearl, an animated ball of yarn, <laughs> who gets a job at a financial company full of your stereotypical suits. Okay. And she feels like an outsider. You know, she's kind of overlooked um, until she figures out that if she morphs herself into a suit, then she can hang like she gets attention you know people laud her presence like oh you're doing a great job like um but it's you know she is not getting to be herself <laughs> because she has conformed to become a suit and i saw that sh it's it's fantastically done and for the first time, I felt seen in terms of what my own journey had looked like and why I ultimately decided to leave that firm. Um, I think at their height in terms of number of advisors, when I was there, there were over 50 advisors there. And I was the only female who had been there like for the duration. And that just what it wasn't changing. Um, and I didn't... I just didn't love the culture that that resulted in when we had a lot of, you know, really great female employees. And I just didn't love the culture that was created through the lack of diversity. You know, that could be a great be place for certain people, but it wasn't a great place for me. Be because because of limited advisor diversity overall or, or the dynamics of like, we have women at this firm, but the women are all admin and the advisors are all men. Both. Yeah. And it was when, you know, when I, I just, I had to be such an advocate for myself. And again, I'm in my early twenties. Like, what do I know about, you know, taking on like some of these things? Like there were, you know, there would be policies about what, you know, whether men and women could, you know, do certain work together and, um, or discussions about them anyway, you know, just things that I was like, this is not right. It's just not right because it's not leading to inclusion. And, I found myself like I was, I have three daughters now. Um, I was expecting my first daughter and I just had this aha moment where I realized I wouldn't want my daughter to work here. And that hit me in the, I mean, there's, there are great people at that firm and I am still friends with a lot of them. So, you know, that was a me thing. <laughs> 
Um, but I wanted to be a part of something different. At that point, like ownership was being talked about, like bringing in more partners. There was a majority owner. They were talking about bringing in more partners. And I was like, I wouldn't be, wouldn't be proud to own a part of this. Not because like there was fantastic things being done for doctors. You know, that's where I learned the niche. That's where, like, I'm so grateful for so many things that I learned there and so much wisdom that people were willing to share with me. And so I don't want to downplay that at all. But when it came right down to it, um, you know, I, I wanted to be an owner in a place that I would be really proud for my daughter to work. And that's what ultimately led to me making the decision to leave that firm and has been the foundation of a lot of the decisions that we've made in terms of how we've built our firm as well. So if you had been working at the firm for a number of years already, and, and then we're making the decision to, to shift out, like, did you have to start over? Did you have like, employment, like non-solicit, non-compete provisions and in a contract there? Were you free to go? Like how did the, how did the transition work when you decided, I'm not sure I want to build my career here? Yeah. So um, there was, it was a group of five of us that left together, um, you know, kind of uh, realized we were all looking to leave, you know, Mm. and that we had a lot of similar beliefs about what we wanted to continue from where we were and what we wanted to do differently or, you know, change. And so um, one of those, uh, one of those advisors, who's one of my business partners at Vestia, um, was an owner at that firm. And so he did not have a non-compete in his contract. So he he and a couple of the other guys who were on his direct team were able to leave. Um, I did have a non-compete and a non-solicit. And I mean, keep in mind, I started this job when I was 21 years old, fresh out of college. (laughs) Uh, They offered me a job. I, of course, signed immediately. Yeah, I remember. That's what you do at that point, right? In my, you know, my dorm room, they have you live on campus all four years at Vanderbilt. I was in my dorm room and signed that employment contract. I didn't, like, I didn't know the first thing about what to look for in that or where I should be advocating for myself or anything like that. And so, you know, I learned a lot of lessons through that. I have not signed my name to something since that I didn't read and also have an attorney read. Um, uh-huh. But we actually, we took a risk. We went to them and I had taken on a leadership role at that firm because I really wanted to be part of the change. You know, I wanted to make an impact. I wanted to have that. And so I'd taken on a leadership role at that firm. I was really trying to, you know, support a lot of the female employees and, you know, be a part of that change. And I had built up a lot of goodwill in that process. And so we made the decision, you know, I, I really wanted to be proud of how we left. And so um, we went to them and we said, look, we would like to leave. Um, We would love it if we could make this amicable and think about the clients first. And we are very open to buying them, you know, and here's how we would propose we do that. And that was a big risk. I still remember the, you know, emotions or the nerves going into that day. Letter, you know, that that we were going to send that letter. Um, But it actually was very, it it was very amicable. Um, It was clients first. And we were able to buy out the portion that that firm owned and we were able to leave with those clients. So, yeah, I'm just wondering, like, how do you deliver that message? Like, is that a, is that an email? Is that a letter? Or is that a, like, you call a meeting with the firm leadership and the five of you and say, here's what we're thinking about. Let's talk. Like, just how, how do you have that? How do you get the conversation <laughs> I, started? I've only done it once. I don't know if we did no. it right. Um, we put, we put together a letter that we all signed our names to, and then we sent that. We were all in different locations. So we sent that via email and then um, asked that we have a meeting to follow up and talk about it. Okay. Uh, and, and I guess at least 
wondering like are you going to get a reply that just says given your you know given your interest in leaving the firm we've just decided to terminate you and yes Move on. And I had just, I, sorry, I got emphatic there because I like, I'm taken right back <laughs> yep. to those emotions, man. I also, I had just had my first baby and I was the breadwinner of our household. And so I knew I had to do this, but it was terrifying. I mean, it was terrifying. I had a one month old and, you know, here I was making this potentially, you know, change the entire direction of our future decision. <laughs> so what did you, what did you propose? Like, I'm just curious, like how, how did you pitch this? We had kind of said like, you know, we would value the client. We would let the clients ultimately make the decision, right? And so, um, again, putting the clients first and we would send a letter to our clients, notify them of our intention to leave, let them know that they could choose where they wanted to be served going forward. We'd be happy to connect them with an advisor at that other firm if they wanted to stay. Um, and then we would value the clients that we were planning to take and we would you know, we would pay for those. And that's ultimately what we did. And, and can I ask, like, how did you, I mean, just how did you value them? I mean, is there a, we had a valuation. Okay. Yeah. We had FP transitions do evaluation of that, the business. Um, and then we went off of that. And was the formula like a percentage, like you don't know which clients are going to say yes to you and which ones are going to stay with the old firms. Was it like a percentage of the revenue kind of formula or you waited and actually sent the notice and then after the clients chose, you came back and got a valuation of what that was worth? One of our values at Vestia is to give a surplus. Um, we're like very, like we spent a lot of time crafting our core values. You can see them on our website. We really do live them and you know, celebrate them and celebrate when employees live them. And one of our values is to give a surplus. And so, you know, I think that started back then <laughs> in that we said, look, we're going to take the risk here. Um, if a client decides not to come with us and we paid for them, so be it. Um, I mean, 99% or higher of our clients did decide to come with us. And we were very confident in those relationships that we had, but we didn't do the thing where we went back and like re-looked at who stayed and who went. And we didn't do that. Oh, so so in essence, like the presumption was this is essentially our book of clients that we're responsible for. Like we're going to buy them as a book of clients. The expectation is we're we're taking all of these clients. We're gonna send the letter and let them know, like, if you don't want to come, you are welcome to stay where you are. We'll help you and make that easy. But the the it was sort of a presumptive, like we are assuming pretty much everyone's coming. Yes, that's exactly what we did. And so does that mean in the in the like the background of the growth uh, of the firm, like you're you're still in the process of paying off a note that was financed as part of this transition? Like that's yes. part of what the business carries in the in this phase. Yes, that's exactly what that means. So what surprised you the most about building an advisory business as you made the transition to actually be the, the owner building it now? Yeah, I think um, I mentioned our core values earlier. I think if I think about what has surprised me most about Vestia, um, like I always believed that if you put like our people are our product, right? Our people are the ones who are delivering the value to our clients. Our people are the ones who are interfacing with our clients. Like we think financial planning is our product and it probably technically is. But the way I always thought about it, our people are our, our product. And so I always I mean, have people this- people mean your team members. Correct. Okay. I always had this belief that if we invested in taking great care of our people, they would in turn take great care of our clients and make our firm a great place to work. Um, 
we took a risk in that we don't have uh, like we don't have non-competes for our advisors, probably partially because of what we came out of and you know where we are. But because mm. I always thought it should be the responsibility of those of us who are building this firm to make it a place that people want to stay and make it a place that people want to build their practices. And so if I think about what has surprised me the most, um, I always believed that, but I didn't know if it was true. <laughs> And we're only four years into this, so I can't say for certain, but we spent a lot of time on the front end crafting our core values. We intentionally talk about those in our interview process. We have hired some of the most phenomenal team members I could ever imagine working with. We have an internal messaging, you know, Slack-esque channel on Ring Central, and people are always praising each other. They're always helping each other. Um, just the collaboration, the energy, they feel well cared for. They're taking great care of our clients. It is a fun place to work, even though we're doing the same financial planning anyone else is. Mm. And maybe everyone feels like this at their firm. I hope everyone does feel this way at their firm, but I did not feel that way in the past, right? Like I mentioned, I was like fitting in with the suits and that is no longer a thing. We have a team, we have a structure where anyone can ultimately become an owner. Um, it, and I, I have just been, like I continue to, to pinch myself, I said this in the beginning just by being here, but I continue to pinch myself that this is that this is real. That you know, investing in the people, investing in the values, and making them something that compels the right people and repels the wrong people has resulted in this environment that is just a fantastic place to work and a fantastic place for clients to be served. So, what was the low point on this journey for you? I mean. <laughs> There have been plenty of moments of doubt. Um, you know, I say like if I knew now, if I knew then what I know now about just how hard it would be. I mean, I built a practice from nothing, right? I got like a small stipend to go out and do some workshops. And um, I don't, I, I wouldn't change it because it got me where I am, but I don't know if I would go do it again because it was so hard. Um, so there have been plenty of moments of doubt. I think, um, I think just I think they've all been learning experiences. I think being able to shift from not thinking about like, you know, oh my gosh, can I do this? Or, oh my gosh, can I survive this? Or, um, you know, whatever is thinking like, how could I do this? Like what could be possible? And again, I mean, I credit like the community that you have and the platform that you give people to share has been a huge part of this, right? Because it's now very easy to find someone who has faced a similar challenge to what you're facing and who has come yep. through it and to learn some of what they've learned without having to, you know, actually learn that yourself. And so, you know, I don't know that I, I mean, other than just kind of that epiphany moment of realizing that I needed to leave the firm I was at. Um, but again, I wouldn't change it because it's gotten me where I am and I'm really, really proud of what we've done. So what, what does fall into that category of like things, things, you know, now that you wish you'd known then? Um, I mean, part of it is just how hard of work it is to quote pound the pavement. Like that's what I was doing, you know? And it's like, I didn't know back then that I was going to be successful. Um, you know, I saw the statistics after the fact on how many people are not successful at that. Which um, might have been a helpful mental protection retrospect. Yeah. And it, I mean, it worked out for me. So again, I wouldn't change it, but um, I... I would have had that, I would have had that contract looked at, right? Like I would have probably sought more wisdom from inside of the industry before. Like I've just always had this, I can conquer the world mentality. Um, 
you know, I have an amazing work ethic and I've always believed that that could get me anywhere I want to go. And, you know, I didn't realize that there would be all of these other challenges with, you know, contracts and with, you know, some of the things that I mentioned before with like just me not fitting in certain places. And, you know, I didn't realize that there were going to be those outside forces that at times threatened to stand in my way. And so I think um, I've just, I've learned a lot through that. And I've learned a lot to, you know, to share with other people too, where I'm like, part of what I want to do, we have younger up and coming advisors. I don't want them to have to do what I did to build a practice. I have a really strong referral stream um, of great new clients for our firm. And I would love to help someone else get to where I am, like shorten their runway. Like, I would love to make it easier for them. Just because I went through it doesn't mean that someone else has to. I want to learn from it. And, you know, one of my mantras is like, I'm okay with making mistakes, but I don't want to make the same one twice. Um, And so anytime something goes wrong or something doesn't go the way that I want it to, I want that to turn into a lesson learned because I don't want to be solving the same issues over again. And I don't want to be making the same mistakes over again. And so I think the more that I can make it easier on, you know, I'm probably G2, so like G3, (laughs) that's what I want to do. So what advice would you give younger and newer advisors coming into the industry today? So I think, and I alluded to this a little bit earlier, I think planning is definitely like you have to be able to do financial planning. There are obvious ways to learn that, right? Like you can do the certified financial planner. You can, you know, oftentimes learn from other people at your firm or you've got planning departments or, you know, whatever. And so that is a big part of it. I think if I think about all the places that I have really leveled up and where I have learned to unleash my real impact, like my highest impact as an advisor, is when I have spent time working on my emotional intelligence, um, when I've spent time working on my communication skills, like how do I actually effectively communicate these things to clients as an expert, but not using the language of an expert, right? <laughs> right, Like using language that they can understand. And so I think the human part and the communication part of advising is just as important as the quality financial plan. And I think the the sooner you realize that, the sooner you can invest in your development along those lines, the more successful you will be. But more importantly to me, the more impact you'll have and the more value you'll be able to deliver to clients, which is just going to continue to result in more and more success for your firm and your practice. So where do you like where do you go to learn that or what like books or resources are you are you going to to learn that? Yeah, so I've done I mean I've done different things over the years. I remember doing um, some public speaking trainings. I know there's like organizations you can join and things like that. There's been various consultants over time that have done different workshops that I've gotten to be a part of. Um, We actually have at our firm coming up in a couple of weeks, or I guess by the time this episode comes out, it will have already happened. Um, But we have a two-day communication workshop that is being put on by um, Decker Communication that's all about how to just have more effective conversations. So that's something that we're doing. Um, In the past, there's a that's essentially an, an internal advisor training program yeah. for, for the advisors with your firm is a, a full-on two-day yes. communication training. Yeah. And we have a budget. We have a line item in our budget every year that is for the development of our professionals. And we often choose something that is communication focused or, you know, better under, we've done, we did a deep dive on insights. That's kind of the like personality profile or whatever that we use in our 
hiring process. And then we also use that internally just to understand how we're all wired. So we did a um, training that was a deep dive on that. That was really helpful because I start to think about my clients in those terms too. I'm like, oh, so-and-so is... Uh, actually, I don't know if you're familiar with insights, Michael, but I promise you would be a blue, which is funny because blue's your thing. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I'm I'm very familiar with insights, and yes, I'm very much a blue. It is a <laughs> it is a running joke that the blue the blue ended up being a blue in insights. The blue is the blue. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I can recognize those things, and our team can recognize those things in our clients as well. And so the way that I present, say, an investment strategy to a client who is blue, so that's someone who's very data-driven, wants to be in the details, wants to see everything under the hood, is going to be different than how I'm going to present that same proposal to a red, who is someone who's like, you know, get to the point, hop to it, I only have 20 seconds. And so I think learning those things has been really key. There's a, there's a um, man by the name of Jess Toddfeld. He doesn't do work specifically in our industry, but I did a public speaking training with him years ago that was phenomenal. He actually had us all video record ourselves <laughs> and our why story that we use with clients. And then we sat in a room and we all critiqued one another. And it was one of the most uncomfortable things I've ever been through. And also one of the most effective things I've ever been through. Mm. So for new advisors, I would not downplay. I mean, I would invest in that. I would not downplay how important that is if you really want to connect with people and you really want to have a lasting impact. So what comes next for you? That's a great question. Um, I think for me, this is always a moving target. <laughs> I have had, I've had three, three daughters in the last four years. So my wow. brain has been a little distracted. <laughs> okay. That's, that's a whole challenge into itself. How, how does that work in the middle of launching a firm? Um, I mean, it's been a ride. It's, <laughs> I have, uh, you know, my husband was bought in on this from the start. He really wanted me to do this and that made a huge difference. Um, He actually stayed home with our first for a period of time so that I could do these things that I needed to do to get the firm off the ground. Um, And so I really, I will say um, the value of, I have made over the last few years, some amazing advisor mom friends who have been some of the most important people and voices of reason and sanity and all of that in my life over these past few years. People who are also running practices who also have children. Um, the So I've, I've noticed that women in medicine, again, also a traditionally male-dominated field, are a little bit ahead, face similar issues to women in finance and like in our industry, but are a little bit ahead in terms of like mobilizing themselves. And there's this massive group on Facebook called the Physician Moms Group that's just this incredible community of support. So I'm like, if anyone out there is listening and wants to like help me with the Advisor Moms Group, email me. Like, not kidding, LinkedIn message me. <laughs> Because uh, the more advisor moms out there that I can connect with and just have that sense of solidarity, um, that has just been incredible for me. But well, well, it, we can certainly ahead. help make that happen. So, so for folks that are listening, this is episode 277. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 277, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get some contact information out for you know, Lauren through LinkedIn or, or, or her website so that you can reach out if you want to to create the advisor moms Facebook group. Or Ooh, I love whatever it. platform you don't have to do it on Facebook, but yeah, that was an aside. But I would love if that became a thing because I've seen the power of the physician moms group. Oh. Um, it's just I, I've never been a dad, so I can't speak to that experience. But um, you know, there's just a lot of demands yeah. being a mom and um, just everything that comes along with that and the biology of all of it, and then also you know trying to do everything at the firm. What I have, what I have 
come to. My life is a constant exercise in prioritization. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I have determined, like I've got my glass balls and my rubber balls, right? So like a glass ball, if it's on my to-do list, then I drop it, it shatters. If a rubber ball is on my to-do list, it will just bounce along and I can pick it up whenever I have the energy Ooh, or the I time like to do analogy. it. I like that analogy. I don't remember where I heard it. It was years ago, but oh my gosh, it has served me so well. Um, and I just have learned to prioritize presence. So when I get home from work, um, I don't keep my phone with me. I don't have an Apple Watch or anything like that. My phone stays where I come in and I leave my keys and I spend that time with my daughters until they go to bed. Like I prioritize presence. I try to do the same thing at work. Like if I'm with one of my team members and I'm helping them with something, um, if I'm focused on an initiative for a firm, like I prioritize being present there. That has been really, really helpful for me. And then just having a great team, um, a great team at home, a great team at work. Um, And then also realizing that I think it's made me a more effective advisor. If you go back to the female physicians, um, they are juggling all of these things too, right? A demanding job, oftentimes children and all of the things that come with that, navigating maternity leave and how they're going to do that and how they're going to get paid for that. And so I have been able to, again, just level up the impact that I can deliver because I now understand it in a way I never did before. And so I can be advocates for them in a way that I couldn't be before. So uh, as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success. And and one of the themes that always comes up is obviously just the word success means different things to different people. And so you're you're on this fantastic path for success and growth of the firm. But I'm wondering, how do you define success for yourself at this point? Yeah, you asked what's next. I should have said, I do want Vesti to be a billion dollar firm. So there's that. Um, For myself, I mean, I think success is an ever moving target for me. Like it depends on when you ask what I think success is. Um, it's honestly beyond what I even dreamed of that I'm here having this conversation with you today and that so many advisors are going to be listening, thinking that they can like glean wisdom from me. So um, I, it used to be, if you would have asked me that question about what success is, I would have put a number on it. Um, you know, a number that I wanted my, re- my practice revenue to be at, or, you know, something like that. I've definitely pivoted that, um, you know, probably since becoming a mom and just starting to think about things in a little bit of, or leading a firm, um, as opposed to just my individual practice. Now I definitely think about my impact. Um, I always have this vision of, I have so much respect for my great grandmother. And I always think about like when I'm where she was, um, you know, in her 80s, living her best version of life and the stories that she would tell, you know, what are those stories that I want to be able to tell? And what do I want to look back and know that I, um, you know, where I had impact and that, you know, that's my clients, that's my team. I def- I want to see other people be successful because of the foundation that I have laid and I want to see them realize their full potential. That's part of it for me. There's my family and my daughters, right? I want to help them figure out who they are and where their giftings are best suited. And, um, you know, I want to be able to make that investment in them to help get them to their fullest potential. And then um, I have charitable involvement too. I'm very involved in the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation and I have Crohn's disease. So that's very, very important to me. Um, you know, I think about just generosity for that cause and for other causes. And um, yeah, it's it ultimately goes back to to impact. And I want to be able to look back when I'm 80 and, you know, I'd be able to say, holy cow, you know, like I impacted a lot of people. Um, I don't know exactly how that looks yet, but I'll tell you when I'm 80. Awesome. Well, hopefully it has a good turning point here for the advisor moms group that gets created from this podcast. 
Yes, I love that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Lauren, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, Michael. Likewise, likewise. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.